Hello, Alex. Um, uh, this is a uh, part two of our uh, little um, uh, question session, uh, medic, medic to lawyer. I'll introduce myself again in case someone's clicked directly on, on part two and not on part one. I'm Dr. Mark Taubert. I'm a palliative care consultant. I work in uh, Belindra Cancer Center in Cardiff and in University Hospital, Flandock. Did you want to introduce yourself as well? Yes. Yeah, I'm Alex Arkeen. I'm a barrister specializing in mental capacity law. And uh, as with uh, our last little uh, podcast or video cast, if you if you like, I've I've set that little egg timer to about twenty minutes or so, so that we uh, we don't we don't overshoot, um, so that people don't get uh, bored to tears of of hearing us. Um, so yeah, I prepared uh, two uh, very simple questions for you, Alex, um, which you'll be able to probably answer with one sentence summaries quite quite easily. Yeah, uh, do my best. I'm actually uh, relishing the fact that I can cross-examine a, a barrister now. So, uh, you know, that's it's fantastic. And um, I'm, I'm going to try and avoid you getting counter-questions in as well, because I know what you lot are like. Um, so, yeah, my first question really is something that I get asked by students uh, a lot, by medical students, by, by, by doctors. I do a fair bit of teaching on advanced care planning and, and uh, a little bit on the Mental Capacity Act as well. And they say when it comes to um, DNA CPR forms, uh, for instance, they, 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 a lot of them are quite well read. They've read the um, Tracy uh, judgment and they say, Mark, what is the difference between distress and harm? So I wondered if you could outline uh, um, an answer to my question. What is harm, Alex? Yes, that is, that is a really important question. And I think, can I just contextualize it very slightly? Yes. Because I think it's important to understand what the court was trying to do in that case, hmm. because, and I should say, I was involved for Addenbrooke's hospital um, at the beginning of the case, and then I went on sabbatical. So although my name doesn't appear on it, I, I very vividly remember the case. Yes. Um, and I would just say one of the things about that case is it's a case study in communication. Hmm. Because the first conversation which took place about the do not resuscitate notice was, I'm afraid, a terrible example of clinical communication. It was just dreadful where the doctor who was communicating and the family who were being communicated to heard two totally separate things. The yeah. doctor thought they communicated, the family heard something completely different. Yeah. The second conversation where the do not resuscitate, there was a second do not resuscitate uh, notice, which wasn't the subject of any challenge at all, was an example of fantastic clinical communication. Really, really good. Where both, as it were, groups of people understood what the other was seeking to get yeah. that the first the first aspect was just a really poor uh, example of clinical communication and what the court was really trying to do was say look we know do not resuscitate notices are very regularly used mm -hmm. we also do know because we've got evidence before us that cpr doesn't always work so we're not saying that cpr is necessarily going to save the day in every single situation mm -hmm. Um, and we also do understand that do not resuscitate notices aren't advanced decisions to refuse treatment. They're mm. not the patient's own decision. Mm. They're a clinical decision about what's likely to work um, and whether or not it's going to be offered in any particular case. So they're not binding documents, but we understand that if there's a do not resuscitate notice in place, it is very, very much more likely that the person faced, especially at three in the morning, Mm -hmm. with someone who haven't gone into cardiac arrest is not going to do much more than go here's a do not resuscitate notice i'm not going to attempt cpr 
So it's that fact between the, the, the fact of the conversation and well, what's meant to be the conversation and the recording in the notes by the doctors of the, the do not resuscitate notice and then what's likely to happen is that the court was very prepared to accept that that is, potential, is a potential huge infringement of the person's Article 8 rights, mm-hmm. right, Article 8 rights to autonomy to choose what happens to them. Mm-hmm. So against that backdrop, they're saying it's incredibly important that doctors to communicate with the person what they're thinking. Mm-hmm. So it's that very kind of simple idea. And it was obviously arguments put by lawyers to lawyers. And in the cold light of day in the courtroom, it sounds very easy to say, well, it must be obvious that you can always have a conversation. So why would you never have a conversation? Mm -hmm. So what's the threshold for not having a conversation? Well, it's gotta be a pretty high threshold. Mm -hmm. It can't be the doctor taking some um, paternalistic view Mm -hmm. that I don't want to worry Mrs. Jones. You can sort of hear the tone of voice. Oh, I don't want to worry her. Don't want to trouble her. It's a difficult time. You know, I just, it's just easier if I do it. Mm. And I think it's fair. I think, I think I would I'd be interested in your view, but I suspect it's the case. That's probably an attitude which, which is definitely has been around. You know, yeah, but, yeah. Certainly. Yeah, certainly. I mean, I don't know. And, and, and something in me sort of nearly, um, rails against the, the word paternalism in that. And I yeah. know that, um, objectively that's what it is but subjectively it just feels of it feels like you know we, we try to be kind we try and minimize distress and you know uh, uh, after after the judgment came out and after we made decisions on on having far more of these conversations in hospitals i, I remember an absolutely lovely doctor coming up to me and she said um you know uh, i'm gonna have to distress all my patients now with having this conversation uh, to the, uh, with, with them and she's the least paternalistic person you could ever imagine but uh, yeah I know what no, you but, mean. Uh, but that's such an important reason why we are having this conversation now hmm. and actually I remember my next door neighbor is a doctor or opposite uh, is a doctor and he was very I mean he knew I had some involvement with the case and he was absolutely hopping mad <laughs> at, at the idea that are you seriously telling us you lot are you seriously telling us we need to go and distress people mm. and upset and really cause them harm? Mm. And I've contextualized the question partly to give myself time to give me, give you the answer, but I think <laughs> it's important to put it in that context. Answer the question, Alex. Yeah. Which is that the, 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 the court was trying to push the pendulum mm. and it really was trying to push the pendulum, but at the same time was recognizing that there is clinical judgment for you to exercise in whether you are going to cross the line from as it were merely upsetting the person to mm. actually harming them mm. and the court made really clear that if you can explain why you mm. thought it crossed the line they are basically not going to interfere mm. so actually it comes so much back down to you saying that's why i took the decision not to do it mm. And it's it, it, it the judges do understand uh, uh, the judges do understand that they're not clinicians. They understand they're not faced with the actual conversation. And yeah. so what they're looking for is that explanation. Mm. And so I can't tell you precisely what harm is going to be because it, harm is not a it's not like a it's not saying on a scale or a kind of metric that you can identify with a figure. Mm. But it's an explanation by a, a clinician conscientiously aware of what the law is. Tracy saying this is why this was 
as it were, more than just temporarily potentially troubling to her. Yeah. And I think one of the things, and I'd, I'd be really interested in your take on this. I think one of the things is people sometimes shy away from difficult conversations, mm -hmm. but actually sometimes having the difficult conversation is a really important thing to do and actually could be really positive and really helpful in terms of, for instance, identifying wider priorities for the person which yeah. go beyond merely this fixation on CPR, which we were talking about in the first bit of our chat, and actually could get a bigger picture of what's important to them more across the board about, for instance, is it more important to be kept alive at all costs yes. or be kept comfortable? Mm. And so with that shove, mm. rather a sort of indelicate shove from the courts, it may be, mm. but maybe that's just me being starry-eyed and idealistic about or kind of hopeful about that impact. Yeah, yeah. No, I, it's, it's true. I mean... It, there's, there's lots of things with it, but I, I think it certainly has caused it, it, it's more, more doctors are having and more nurses are having those really important conversations now. And I think, I think that's what has to happen. And I think the, the, the nice thing is that more ha are, are having it and they're brilliant communicators or they've really enhanced their communication skills and they've really looked into it, how to bring up the topic and how to bring up the topic of, um, CPR in the context of all the other treatments that might be available. So, you know, I've got patients who, you know, um, are having active, if you want to call it, cancer treatments and having chemotherapy, they're on research trials, having immunotherapy, they're having radiotherapy, all sorts of things. But they've also got a DNA CPR form in their pocket. And they know exactly that is one of the many things on the medical menu, if you like, that they wouldn't choose. Um, and, and that's how they look at it. So I, I've got this little video uh, um, on talk CPR, which is the treatment ladder approach. So I talk to people through all sorts of treatments and you'd be surprised that lots of people actually opt out of some other treatments as well. Um, you know, recently, uh, you know, I had a person who didn't want blood transfusions because of um, uh, religious views. And, and, and so if, if you look at it from a, a wider context, I think, I think that can be very, very helpful. But um, if, if it's useful for you, I, when, I, when I talk to, to my students or to talk to, to doctors about this or nurses, I tend to look at um, distress versus harm. <clears throat> harm or perhaps in the sort of longer term impact of something. So yeah. I've had a conversation with someone and they've been really, really distressed and I, I know perhaps they, they're, they're in an awful state of, of really dark depression and, and they're very fearful and anxious. And they've told me multiple times beforehand that they don't want to have a discussion about medical treatments. And they've warned me and I feel myself forward in a conversation um, a lot of the time. So I sort of say, OK, is it OK if I continue along this line of communication? And if they clearly say, no, I really don't want to talk about this. It really freaks me out. It really distresses me. Actually, just carrying on because I want to would, would seem wrong and paternalistic and harmful as well. Yeah. So that's kind of my, my approach around it. So maybe, maybe there's a more long-term effect that it might have on you, but also also in the short, short term. Whereas distress, distress I would maybe see as something that it's a bit distressing. It's, it's horrible having a DNA CPR discussion in some ways and filling in form for someone and giving them that form. I mean, who wants a DNA CPR form? Let's, 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 let's be, be frank about this. Uh, but it's distress where you kind of say, oh, okay, yeah, it's a bit like making a will. Maybe you have to think about the worst, but then I've done it. And actually, some people feel better that they've done it yeah. later. And then 24 hours later, they say, you know what? Really good that we've done this. I'm really happy that we did this. My family were a bit distressed initially, but they've taken it on the chin. And now we've discussed this whole matter. You know, that's how I look at it, maybe. Yep. Yeah. 
and I, as a lawyer, would be more than content uh, with that as your explanation for why it was in <laughs> why it wasn't in the particular case that you said no. I am not actually. My job here is not to hurt this person. Yeah, and there's got to be. I mean, the law is not contrary to some people's views, not completely idiotic. <laughs> and if actually in seeking to do good mm. or seeking to implement someone's rights, you are actually harming them, something has gone slightly wrong. Yeah. yeah. And that's yeah. where I think people, I, I do think people sometimes have really misunderstood that judgment. Yeah. And I think it's, it's, that's the calibration is the important bit. Yeah. I'm just looking at my time. I've got a few minutes left, Ashley. Yep. Um, so I'm going to ask my second question, which is what is making what is making a decision or what is what is a decision um and i'll flesh that one out a little bit for you um so if i'm if i'm if if i'm sitting with a patient i'm having a conversation with them or or whatever and i'm signing a i as a clinician i'm signing a dna cpr form yep does, does that in itself constitute making a decision as the term is used in the mental capacity act um, where it says, I think any decision made on behalf of a person who lacks capacity must be done or made in that person's best interests. Um, and yeah, I think people listening to this might say, well, that's an easy yes, of course it is. Um, but if a DNA CPR form is signed in hospital on behalf of a patient with cancer who lacks capacity and three months later um, at home, he or she has a sort of cardiac arrest, a decision whether to administer CPR is made by the first attenders at the time of that arrest. Um, and then the DNA CPR form is said to be advisory only. Are they both decisions? Is the first one not a decision? Uh, or is the commencement of CPR at the time when the arrest happens a decision? And, you know, if, if, if we want to take that further, when it comes to Arbid, Arbids, it gets more interesting. And you, you, you've seen maybe my sort of uh, question before hand to you in emails on this, this one as well um but i'll maybe just stop now and yep. see how to answer that. it's actually it's it's an annoyingly complex answer hmm. which i'll try and make simple hmm. um the short answer well the easiest way of thinking about what a decision is you've got five minutes <laughs> i will be able to cover it within then i hope the hmm. easiest way of thinking about what a decision is within the context of the mental capacity act is is it a decision the person could have taken for themselves? So a person is never going to make a DNA CPR decision for themselves. They are never going to decide for themselves to put a do not resuscitate notice in their records. That's just, you can't do that. If you say, I don't want CPR, you have to make an advanced decision to refuse CPR. Hmm. As it's a life-sustaining treatment, it would need to be in writing it would need to be witnessed and it would need to say i'm aware that it will take effect even if my life is at risk do not resuscitate notices just don't contain that they just that's just not what they are um so it's not a decision on behalf of the person i mean and we're clearly in this context talking about a person who lacks capacity to to enter into the conversation about uh, do not resuscitate no, about cpr so what it is is at that point the doctor doing what do I think, gathering all the information that I can get, including in particular from other people about whether or not this person would want CPR, what do I think would be in their potentially, would CPR be in their best interest? And also in some circumstances, would CPR in fact work at all? Mm. Because there are obviously two different things going on. One is just CPR just simply won't work mm. because of the patient's condition. Mm. So at that point, it's futile. So it's just essentially, it's not even on the table. 
the edgier ones or the more complex ones are where it might well work but the downside might be all sorts of complications make it actually make the person's situation much worse but if we knew that's what they would have wanted cpr could be in their best interests yeah the actual decision if you think about it in mca terms legally where it becomes relevant is in terms of the defense in terms of section 5 mental capacity act because what actually is going on in legal mechanical terms is the paramedic or whoever it is who is actually physically assaulting the person, mm. because that's what it is. CPR is an assault on person. It's a, it's, it's an, a touch of the person to which they haven't consented. That person is criminally or civilly liable unless they reasonably believe the person lacks capacity and they reasonably believe they're acting in the person's best interests. Mm. They need that defense. And that's where they, at that point, armed with the do not resuscitate notice, they've got a very strong steer that in fact, it's very likely not to be in that person's best interest to provide it. But they could still go, well, you know what? Actually, there's something now which is telling me it is in their best interest. So you'd have, that's where it comes in. The water, I'm afraid, has been muddied. So I mean, really, it's simple. You as medic making the decision as to whether or not to place a DNA CPR notice in that person's records are not making a decision within the terms of the MCA. Mm -hmm. It's the, the paramedic or the nurse or the, even you, if you're carrying out the, the CPR at the time, mm -hmm. the water has been, uh, is, is where the decision comes in for MCA purposes. The water has been muddied by the Winspear case because in the Winspear case, um, I'm afraid, I'm afraid actually the lawyers involved didn't bluntly quite understand the mental capacity act, nor did the judge. And so the judge talked in terms of the decision around placing the CPR notice in Carl's records as an MCA decision, which is why he said it was so important that there was consultation with Carl's mother. And because there hadn't been consultation, the doctor who placed a do not resuscitate notice in his records and then the trust on whose behalf he was acting were not protected against the claim for the breach of his Article 8 rights. Okay. But if you actually work it through as a matter of logic, what decision was being made at that context? It just doesn't work in NCA terms. Hmm. So, but at a kind of meta level, of course, that the, the, the fact that you are thinking about imposing a do not resuscitate or placing a do not resuscitate uh, notice in the person's records is something which has a very likely consequence for that individual which is why it's so important to take into account whether it's going to be in their best interest do the consultation mm -hmm. so although technically it is not a decision it's pragmatically worth thinking about it as i'm going to apply the principles of the mental capacity act here in particular cons consultation working out what that person would have wanted yeah. so i'm sorry it's not it's not as straightforward answer as you'd have wanted but i think hopefully it, it's, it helps it's, you through it's very useful, actually, because um, I've, I've got quite a few colleagues um, who, who grapple with that one. And um, I, I think I think uh, some of the clinicians watching this will find that very, very useful. Um, and I, I've, I've had this, dis this discussion several times with people who are quite interested in this from a medical and clinical side. So, yeah. uh, so that, that makes it clear. And, and you know, your, your, your critique of, of the judge and, and, and the team in the, the Winspear case is, is, is very interesting. Uh, as well in that i mean uh, i hope for your sake that they're not watching this but uh. <laughs> no it's all right i i've been rude about it in print as well so, <laughs> okay yeah. fine or, or, or not rude constructively critical so yeah we're at the end of our 20 minutes i i've i found this one very uh, enlightening and very very useful and um i'm gonna i'm, I'm gonna um, um stop the recording here thank you thank you mark thank you